family, family. It's all in the family. All in the family? Whose family is that? Family, family, family. It's all in the family. If I asked you who's in your family, what would your immediate thought be? Some of you are snuggled up next to your wife or husband. I would think about my wife. I think about my husband. I think about my kids. I think about my parents, right? That's the immediate thought that we would have our biological family. But that's not what Jesus thinks about when his family comes on the scene in this text. See, Jesus, he immediately considers the family of God. And in this teaching, he distinguishes between the biological family and the family of faith or the family of God, which brings me to the title of this teaching, simply put, the family of God. Now, we have to remember context here. Um, many of you have been here the last several weeks, so you know where we're at. We've been going through Matthew 12 for like six weeks. Uh, we're finally going to finish today. Um, but remember what's happening. Jesus, from the very beginning, has been rebuking the Pharisees. He's picking a fight with the Pharisees. Remember, it started with the grain picking and the Pharisees accusing the disciples of working on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, essentially, is that your law or God's law? And so he then heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And the Pharisee says, it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, is it, is it unlawful to do good on the Sabbath? Because the Pharisees, as we discussed, they had their man-made law, their religion, if you will, that wasn't even directed by God. It was made up by them, made up by man. Then, if that wasn't bad enough, the Pharisees say they're going to plot how they might destroy Jesus. Jesus continues to rebuke them, continues to pick a fight with them. He makes them feel dumb. He makes them feel stupid. He makes these arguments with them that they're like, uh, speechless. They don't know what to say. He talks to them about how, the, you remember the, the Pharisees in the last chapter, they accused Jesus of doing miracles by the power of Satan. And he's like, why would Satan cast out Satan? Like Satan's for Satan. Why would Satan cast out demons? This doesn't make sense. So time and time again, he's kind of beating them down if you will, but not because he's mad at them, but because he loves them and he's trying to allow the truth to penetrate their minds and their hearts. So much so, he goes on to say, if you're not for me, you're against me. And if you're against me, you're susceptible to de demon possession. And that's where we, what we talked about in the last teaching. So consider all the different things that Jesus is saying against the Pharisees. He's picking a fight with them. And now his family is concerned, his biological family. And that's where we pick it up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. Look what happens. While he was still talking to the multitudes, and the Pharisees are a main portion of this multitude when we look at the uh, whole chapter, chapter 12, it says, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. So his mothers and brothers come on the scene. Jesus is in the middle of preaching, okay? And they're like, uh, we need to speak to Jesus. Why? They're concerned for his life. He's picking this fight with the Pharisees, and they know this isn't going to end well. 
we know that the religious leaders had so much power in that culture and in that day, and they were afraid that they were going to kill Jesus, which they ultimately do in the end of this story, right? In the end of the gospel. But they're, fear, they're not only fearful for Jesus' life, if you look at Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, it says his own people thought he was out of his mind. And this is the same story. They thought he was crazy. So his mother and his brothers were like, dude, the stuff he said, he's out of his mind. Not only the things that he's saying, but who he's saying them to. He's just asking to be killed. Why is he picking this fight? Because we have to remember, Jesus' brothers, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe in him. His own blood brothers, half-brothers, if you will, his own blood brothers didn't believe in him. You can reference that back to John chapter 7, verse 1 to 5. They didn't believe in him, not in his life, but they surely did after his death and after he rose again because two of them, we know at least, became apostles and wrote epistles. James and Jude were both brothers of Jesus, but during his lifetime, they didn't believe. So think about this. Mother, brothers, they come. He's out of his mind, and the brothers at least are questioning whether he's really the Messiah. They don't believe he's the Messiah. So they try to prevent him from continuing to communicate this message to the multitudes and the Pharisees. Look what happens in verse 47. It says, Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. So his mother and his brothers, they don't even come to Jesus directly. They're like, nudge the guy. Hey, will you go tell Jesus that we need to speak to him? Like, we need to quiet him down a little bit. He needs to hush, hush. They don't even go and tell him personally. They get someone else to tell him. Now, part of this is probably, be, probably because they don't want to embarrass Jesus publicly. Okay, but another side is it, uh, of it is that they're embarrassed of Jesus. Now, we have to remember this family can't really afford more embarrassment. What do I mean? Remember Mary, when she had Jesus, when she was impregnated, when the Holy Spirit conceived, right? When Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, um, Many of the people in that day, they didn't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They believed Jesus was born out of wedlock. So this is like, this is unacceptable in the culture. So Mary already has a bad reputation. And now the son born out of wedlock is picking a fight with the religious leaders of the day. This family can't afford more embarrassment. But we see here in the text, they're embarrassed of, they're ashamed of Jesus. How could they be ashamed of Jesus? This is the first point. Don't be ashamed of the family of God. Don't be ashamed of the family of God. This is literally God's biological family, and they're embarrassed of him. They're ashamed of him. Are you ashamed of being part of Jesus's family? Well, you shouldn't be, because we see here in John chapter 1, verse 12, if you want to flip there, John chapter 1, verse 12, says, but as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them he gave the right 
to become children of God to those who believe in his name. It's a privilege to be part of the family of God. He's like, as many as believed him, he gave the right to become children of God. Later on, John says it like this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Yeah, us. The, uh, these little sinners, all of you, me too, he calls us children of God. How much love is that? That's crazy. John's saying, behold, I know who I am and I know who he is. And he says, I'm part of his family. That's insane. But that's what we need to grasp as believers in recognizing how proud we should be of our heavenly father. How proud we should be that we're part of, we've been invited into this family of God. Are you proud that you get to bear his name? Let me ask you this. Are you proud of your biological family? Okay. Are you proud of your kids? How often do you, those that have kids, talk about their kids? I feel like parents always talking about their kids, their accolades, their accomplishments, all these different things that they've done. Great, I'm proud of my kids. I want to talk about my kids. I'm blessed by my kids. Now, some of you are looking at me like, do you know my kids? (laughs) Um, That's definitely not me who you were just talking about. Maybe it's not. But many of us, we have this, this pride connected to being part of our family. I'm proud of the family that I have. I'm proud of my biological family. But how much more proud should be, you be of the family of God, of the family you've been invited into? Consider who your heavenly father is. If you're proud of who your heavenly father is, your only reasonable response to that is going to be communicating about him, right? As we are proud of our children when they do great things, so too should we be communicating to others about all the great things that God has done for us. If I'm proud of the family I've been a part of, then I'm not going to be able to help but speak about it. Now, this is in connection to speaking the gospel, preaching the gospel. Yeah, it's evangelism. Are you ashamed to share the gospel? Because if you're not ashamed of your family, your, your blo- not your blood family, your family of faith, then you shouldn't be ashamed of sharing about the family's head, which is Christ. Christ is the head of the church. The church is the family of God. Are you ashamed to share the gospel? Paul says it like this. If you flip with me to Romans chapter 1, I love how he says this. Romans chapter 1, verse 15, he says, So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Why is Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Because evidently there were people that were ashamed of the gospel. And it was evidenced by their lack of communicating about it. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm going to preach 
the gospel of Christ. I'm going to talk about my heavenly Father. I'm not embarrassed of Jesus. I'm not embarrassed of His message. And if I'm not ashamed or I'm not embarrassed, then I'm going to communicate about it. And look at how he says this in verse 15. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel. I'm not just doing it because I have to. As much as is in me, I can't help but do it. I, I, I am so proud of my heavenly father. I'm so grateful for my king who died on a cross for me, I can't help but talk to people about it as much as is in me. It's with passion. It's with boldness. Maybe you share the gospel with people. Maybe you don't. Maybe you, share the, maybe you don't share the gospel with people because you're ashamed of the gospel or uh, maybe it's because you're simply afraid. Maybe you're scared. Okay, and some of you are sharing the gospel all the time. I hear about it. I love it. Um, but we see here, as Paul says, as much as in, is in me, I'll share the gospel. That's passion. That's boldness. We know that fear can come against boldness. Fear can come against courage. And many of you, as I said, can be afraid to share the gospel. What if I say something to someone and they don't receive it well? What if they curse me out? happened to me several times. What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? Uh, 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 I don't want to put myself in an awkward situation, so I'm afraid. But what does the Bible tell us about fear? It tells us that perfect love casts out fear. That's 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. If you find yourself afraid to share about the family of God, to share about Jesus Christ, then remember that perfect love casts out fear. What does that mean? Your father's perfect love for you will give you the courage to overcome any fear, including fear of sharing the gospel. How many of you uh, have kids in here? How many of you have taught your kids to ride a bike without training wheels? Less and less hands go up. <laughs> no, follow me. Anybody remember learning how to ride a bike? The transition from no training or from training wheels to no training wheels? Anybody remember that as a kid? Or you guys, can you guys ride bikes? Yeah, we can, right? Sweet. We can all ride bikes here. Yeah, amen. Okay, so, so there's a transition there, right? We're, we, we, we have train, training wheels and then we go from having training wheels to not having training wheels. Now, um, I have a niece. Her name is Savannah. And when she went through this transition. Uh, nowadays, they have, things, they have things for kids like anything you could ever imagine. So they have this little tool that's like a, like a handle that hooks up to the back of the seat of the bike. Anyone ever seen this before? Yeah, some of you, a couple. Okay, so there's a little handle that's hooked up to the back of the seat. So training wheels are gone, but dad has to hold the handle and push the kid off to get them going so that they can get a little, um, they can move forward and, and catch their balance. And then dad lets go and lets them go on their own. See, Savannah, she wouldn't get on that bike unless she had her little support handle thing and her father had her back. See, her father's love for her was all the motivation that she needed to move forward and learn how to ride the bike without training wheels. 
You following me? Sometimes we just need that little push. Sometimes we forget that our Heavenly Father is with us and we allow fear to bind us and prevent us from doing the things that God's called us to do. But when we abide in His perfect love, it will give us the courage and confidence needed to ride the bike without training wheels. We just need that little push sometimes. And that's what he's saying here. Perfect love, cast out fear. Remember who loves you. Remember whose you are. You're your heavenly fathers. The, the being that created the universe said, yeah, you're my child. That's who you have that has your back. How much love is this? So when we abide in that love, it will give us the courage and boldness needed to preach the gospel. There's other, uh, a couple other things that the Bible talks about um, in gaining boldness and courage to communicate about our, the family of God or the father of the family. In Acts chapter 4, you can write these verses down, 23 to 29. I'll summarize the story for time's sake. Um, Peter and John just got, get brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. They're the real deal. And they tell Peter and John, hey, you can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. It can't happen anymore. Peter and John respond and they say, hey, um, we can't help but speak about the things that we've seen and heard. We can't help but talk about Jesus and what he's done for us. And then right afterwards, they were bold in the moment, but right afterwards, they go and pray with the church for more boldness. Why? Because they're a little afraid. They're like, we know if we keep doing this, some of us are going to die, and they do. Most of them do die. But they prayed for boldness because boldness and courage, it's not a one-time thing. It's a continuous thing. It's something that we need constantly. And if we want to be a good family member of Jesus Christ, then a good family member is going to talk about how proud they are of their family. And we need courage and boldness to do that. So pray for it. But not only pray for it. See, the Bible says that, that faith comes by hearing. Seeing if you're awake. You guys are. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As we're in the word of God, as we're studying the word of God, our faith grows, our courage grows, our boldness grows, and we're going to communicate about the gospel more often. Think about it. The more I'm in the word, the more I understand the word, the more I'm abiding in the Lord and his word, and that's giving me confidence. It's giving me understanding, and now I'm in it so much that I can't help but talk about it. See, the family of God talks about the family of God. They talk about their heavenly father. The biological family, in this case, is trying to prevent the message from continuing on. Jesus' very family is trying to prevent them from, prevent him from preaching the gospel. They're trying to stop him. They don't understand what they're doing, but nevertheless, they're there to prevent him from continuing on. In verse 48, Matthew chapter 12, says, but he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my brother and who, sorry, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Now think about this. Jesus like doesn't have to think about, he doesn't have to think about it, okay? Your mother and your brothers are here. They want to speak to you. Jesus is in the middle of preaching to a multitude and he says, these are my mother 
and brothers. These, the people that are following me, Jesus makes a clear distinction between the biological family or the family of blood and the family of faith. Which brings me to my second point. The family of faith is greater than the family of blood. The family of faith is greater than the family of blood. Now, don't take this out of context. I'm not telling you guys you don't have to take care of your families anymore if they're not part of the family of faith. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is Jesus doesn't even acknowledge his mother and his brothers. He just ignores them. He says, hey, no, I'm doing my father's will. I'm investing into my family of faith. See, faith is greater than blood, and that's the distinction that Jesus is making here. I'm investing in the people that, not, that aren't ashamed of me, that are going to continue to follow me when times get tough or through thick and thin. This is my true family, the people that desire to hear my words and do something with it. It's really interesting. Um, Jesus conveniently got to choose his family. Sometimes don't you wish you could choose your family? Like, maybe I'd choose a different brother or a different sister. I mean, we choose our spouses, but, you know, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I like their brother better than my brother. That's horrible. I'm not really saying that. I love my brother. I love my sister. But the point is, Jesus, he gets to choose his family. He chooses his family. That's an interesting. We don't get to choose our, our family. Jesus, he gets to choose his family. And that's exactly what he did in Luke chapter 6, verse 12 to 13. You can write it down. Um, I got a lot of scripture references coming up soon, so I'm probably just going to spit some at you because we might not have time to go through all of them. Okay, Luke chapter 6, verse 12 to 13, it says, Jesus prayed to the Father up on a mountain. When he came down, he chose the disciples. He prayed to the Father, and then he chose his disciples. Jesus, he chose his family. He chose his disciples. We're part of that family. He chose us. That's what it says in John chapter 15, verse 16. John chapter 15, verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Hey, wait, you didn't choose me, did you? Yeah, he chose us first, but he desires us to choose him, okay? We love him because he first loved us. We wouldn't love him if he didn't love us. He loved us, he chose us, and our reasonable response to that is to choose him back. He's chosen each and every one of us. And that's exactly what he did with the disciples. He chose them. But the disciples, like I said, they had to choose him back. And it wasn't just a one-time choice to follow Jesus. No, they had to continue to make a heartfelt choice to follow Jesus. See, they chose to follow Jesus even when it got hard. Jesus walked the disciples through a lot of difficult things, and he didn't tell them it was going to be easy. He said, narrow is the way and difficult is the path that leads to life, and there are few who find it. If you want to continue to follow me, it's a narrow road. It's not easy. Many take the broad path, but that path leads to death. What I'm calling you to is a narrow, difficult path. And that's exactly what he walks the disciples through through throughout his ministry. They, he puts them in very difficult situations. Uh, a specific time in um, John chapter 6, he, 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 he says a very hard saying that's hard to grasp. You know what he tells the multitude that's following him? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
What if that was the message today? Hey guys, today you're going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You're like, half the people would walk out. Some of you would stay just to see what happened. <laughs> but in all sincerity, eat my flesh and drink my blood, it says a bunch of the multitude, they walked away. They're like, dude, come on, what, what is this guy? This is weird. And then he approached the disciples and he says, are you going to go too? The ones that he chose, the twelve. And Peter, one of the greatest things Peter said. Sometimes he said great things, sometimes not so much. But this time it was a great thing. He says, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words to eternal life. See, in that moment, in a hard saying of Jesus, they didn't completely understand it, but they had to continue to choose to follow Jesus. And that's what we're called to as the family of God, to not just choose Jesus in an altar call or through a prayer, but continue to choose to follow Jesus. And even when it gets difficult, even when it gets hard, even when he says difficult things to understand or things that we don't want to hear, like this one. If you're not worthy to forsake all, you can't be my disciples. Flip with me to Luke chapter 14. Listen to what he says here. It's another hard saying of Jesus. Verse 25 of Luke. Look at this one. Now a great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What? Jesus, if you don't hate your mother, brother, sisters, family, any family members, you're not worthy to be my, my disciple? What does that mean? What's Jesus saying here? Well, what he's saying is that if your love for me isn't so great that in comparison, it would look like hatred towards your family, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. See, this is the point. Jesus is saying, if we put any person, any family member, child, anything above him, then we're making that thing greater than him. And if we're making a person greater than Jesus, then we're not going to be able to love them the way they need to be loved. See, when we make Jesus the greatest, when he is preeminent in our lives and we're putting him first, we're loving him the most, Loving him so much that in comparison, it looks like hate towards anyone else, like we would hate someone else. He doesn't want us to hate people. He's saying, love me more than anything else, because if you love me more than anything else, then you're going to love your family like you need to love them. So this is how he starts this little sermon off here in Luke chapter 14, and then he says, Right at the end of it, in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, he says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's another tough saying. Choose to follow Jesus through that saying. All means all. He's saying everything. He's saying family, hopes, dreams, job, position, future. Forsake it all. Don't worry about any of it. Put me first in everything. All those things, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added onto you, but you gotta make me first because if you don't make me first, then you're gonna miss out on all these things that I want for you. See, 
So many things that Jesus walked the disciples through, so many difficult challenges He gave them and hard sayings He spoke to them, the disciples always had a choice. Do we continue to follow or do we choose to walk away? Jesus made it very difficult to follow and really easy to walk away time and time again. But the family of God, they stick by His side. See, the family of faith, it's even stronger than the family of blood in that, hey, we don't, I'm not going to give up on the family of God. I'm not going to give up on Jesus no matter how hard things get, no matter how tough the things are that he communicates. That's what he says. This is my family. These are my brothers and this is my mother. These people, the people that choose to stick it out with me. Pick it up in verse 50, last verse. He says, Forever, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Third and final point the family of faith submits to the Father's will. The family of faith submits to the Father's will. Well, what's God's will? Now, I probably get asked this question by believers in um, different dialogues and counseling things that I'll, I'll have with, with Christians. Ah, I just want to know God's will for my life. Now, we look in Scripture that there's a general will or calling from God, and there's a specific will. So first, let's understand the general will of God, and then I'll talk a little bit about the specific will of God, and that's where we'll close, but a few verses. You can write these down for time's sake. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. Remember, this is the general will of God. Um, God wills or God desires that all men would be saved. It's God's will. He wants all men to be saved, everyone. The worst person you could think of, he wants them to be saved, okay? So you might know God, but they might not. So how are they going to know God? That's God's will that they all be saved. That's why Jesus says preach the gospel, okay? So we share the gospel so that they know him. First Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says this, For this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. What is he talking about? Well, he's specifically talking about moral authority, that what I'm saying lines up with how I'm living. This is the will of God that by doing good you put the silence of foolish men, that when they hear what you say, it lines up with how you live. So you're preaching the word with your mouth, but also in the way that you live your life. So they have nothing to say against you. Wait, man, he's living it. He's different. She's different. She doesn't just talk about these things. She does these things. This is the will of God. Also says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. It says, rejoice always, Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always, always praising Him, always worshiping Him. Pray without ceasing, constantly communicating with Him. And everything give thanks, constantly thanking Him for the blessings He's bestowed for the good times and the bad times. This is God's will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Last one for general will. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
Okay, what's sanctification? Um, sanctification, now, in God's eyes, we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. We're covered in Christ's righteousness. We don't get to heaven because of our righteousness. We get to heaven because of the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. So he looks at us, sanctified means set apart, means holy. Okay, so he looks at us and he says, you're different than the rest of the world, okay? But that's positionally. Practically, he's sanctifying us. It's the process by which we're being made holy. It's really, to sum it up, it's the process by which he's making us like him because that's his will. Of all things, above all things, his will is that we would be made like him. We would look like him. We would act like him. We would talk like him. We would walk like him. That's his will for our life, our sanctification. So think about that. Regardless of where you are and what you're doing, regardless of um, the job you have or the position that you're in, the relationships that you have, God is using every single aspect of, that li- of your life to sanctify you. So you get in an argument with your spouse or your uh, family member, it's like... It's way more than the argument. God's using the argument to expose something in your heart that needs to change. You think it's just an argument. That's just the symptom. The problem is the heart. He's using that argument for you to take a step back and look and say, wait, God, what are you doing in me? What needs to change in my heart? Because what just came out, I thought it was long gone, but now it's here. So there's still things that need to change in my heart. He's using everything. He will use your job. He will use your relationships He'll use a conversation you have when you leave here. He's using it all because his goal is to make you like him. And we're going to fail and sometimes we're going to succeed. But remember, in everything, he's just trying to make us kids like him. You want the best for your kid, right? And the best for your kid is that they would grow and become mature, responsible adults. That's what God wants for us. But maturity and responsibility are defined by the standard that was set by Jesus Christ. So we have something to look to. That's the standard. And he's using everything in our lives to bring us to that standard. See, he loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. He wants to continue to grow us and shape us. You might love your child with your whole heart, but that doesn't mean that you're just going to let them do whatever you want them to do, right? You love them and an act of love is disciplining them. An act of love is correcting them. You're like, I love my child so much, but if they go try to run out in the middle of the street with oncoming traffic, you're like, oh, I love them. I'm just going to let them go. No, you're going to stop them, and they might not know why. They saw a squirrel run across the road, and they want to grab the squirrel. Like, Dad, why are you making me stop running? I was chasing the squirrel, or there was a puppy across the street. It's like, because you're going to kill yourself if you run across the street. This is what the Lord does in the sanctification process. He disciplines us. He corrects us. So God's ultimate goal for our lives is that we would become like him. That's his will for each and every one of us, but he has also a specific will. See, he might call some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be teachers, some to be husbands, some to be wives, some to be parents, some to be electricians, some to be carpenters, some to be you name it. Whatever you are, a police officer, a firefighter, whatever it is, God, God has a specific will for each of our lives. So how do we know, how do we find what that specific will is? Follow me. It's Luke chapter 8, verse 21. This is the same story in Luke's account, okay? 
But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. See, uh, in Matthew's account, he says, um, forever does the will of my father is my brother and my sister. It's defined even clearer here. Okay, what's the will of God? It's hearing his word and doing his word, okay? Do what he says in the present and you'll know what to do in the future. Just be obedient now. And as you're obedient to God's will for you today, you'll better understand what God's will is for you tomorrow, okay? So we see an example of this uh, with King David. God's specific will for David's life was that he would become a king, right? The king of Israel. Now, when this all happened, Samuel was told by God to go to Jesse's house and there's going to be a son of Jesse that you're going to anoint as the next king of Israel. Saul blew it, if you will. But David, what is he doing in that moment? See, Samuel goes through all the sons of Jesse and then he says, no, it's not any of these. It's someone else. And what are these? Oh, I got another one. He's like the youngest. He's a little ruddy. He's out tending to the sheep. David was just being obedient to what Jesse told him to do. He was just tending to the flock. He was shepherding the sheep. He was walking in obedience. And in that moment, God said, this is the son. This is the next king. This is the son that I'm referring to, David. He is the one that's going to lead my people. See, David, at that moment, many scholars will suggest that he was in his early teens, maybe about 15, uh, and he was anointed king of Israel. But he didn't become the king of Israel till he was 30 years old. So he had at least probably 15 or some odd years between the time he was anointed, between the time God revealed his specific will, until the time that he was actually in it. So what happened in that time period? Well, David was a shepherd, right? He was a musician. He served his family. He served his brothers in warfare. Uh, He fought lions. He fought um, bears. He fought giants. He killed Goliath. Uh, He almost got killed by his king. He fled from his king. He hid in caves and traveled to many places and had a following. But see, David chose to be obedient along the way. He was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he was constantly seeking God's will for him. God, what do you want from me? This is crazy. This is madness. What you're walking me through is extremely difficult. God's like, hey, I'm using all of these things to make you the man that I need you to be for this nation because the man they have now is not the right man. And I'm going to use all of this, the shepherding, the music, the worship, the the giant slayer, all these things, the hiding in caves, the feeling like you're going to die. I'm going to use every single thing to fashion you and mold you and make you into the king that I've called you to be. So it was all part of God's specific will for David in making him the king of Israel. But David, he had a responsibility hear the word of God and do it. You know, he says, I meditate on the word day and night. I'm just thinking about, okay, how can I please God today? Just walk in obedience to what God's telling me to do do today. I don't really understand everything that's happening. I don't understand why I was anointed king, but now I'm hiding in caves, but I'm just going to choose to be obedient. And David, choosing to be faithful, choosing to be obedient 
on the day-to-day helped him to become the man and fulfill God's specific will of his life in becoming the king of Israel. Now, David wasn't always faithful. He wasn't always obedient. We know that. David was um, a flawed man like all of us, but in the general sense, he was faithful and he was obedient to what God called him to do. He heard the word, he did the word, and along that path, that simplicity, hear the word, do the word, he became what God called him to become. He fulfilled God's specific will for his life. But see, it's not just about being obedient to get to where God's calling us. It's good to Walk by faithfulness, walk by obedience because we know that God has a specific plan. He's trying to take us to a specific destination and make us become something for a specific purpose. But there's also a satisfaction that we gain from the Lord by just simply walking in obedience on the day to day. Walking in God's will on the day to day. What do I mean? Jesus says it like this in John chapter four. He says, in the midst of, he just walked all the way to um, Samaria from Jerusalem, very long journey. He's with his disciples. He sends them out to get food. And what does he do? He engage, engages in really a counseling session with the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's an amazing conversation that happens, right? Then the disciples come back. They fed their flesh. They're nice and full. Jesus, aren't you hungry? What does he say? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. He's saying, while you guys were feeding your flesh, I was feeding my spirit and I'm so satisfied right now. I'm satisfied in a way that you'll only know if you choose the same path. See, Jesus said his food is to do the will of him who sent me because he was just simply being obedient to what God called him to in that moment. And we can feed off the same. We can feed off being obedient to what God calls us to. Our food should be to do the will of him who sent us. You ever like hear the Lord speak to you? Uh, Maybe it's through your devotional life as you're reading the word, whenever you read it, mornings maybe, um, nighttime, or a teaching, maybe the Lord ministers to you or convicts you or challenges you. Maybe he says, hey, do this or don't do that. I'm giving you direction and then you have the choice, right? You can say, I know God told me to do this, but I don't really want to do it. Or I know he told me not to do this other thing, but I want to keep doing it. When we choose to do it or don't do it, whatever he's telling us to do, at the end of the day, how satisfied do you feel? When you wake up in the morning and God speaks to you and you're like, okay, God's challenging me in this area. He's challenging me to share the gospel or he's challenging me to serve someone in the body or he's trying to, challenging me to help a widow, whatever it is. And then we do it at the end of the day. It's like, man, I'm satisfied. I'm fulfilled. What's the opposite? We hear the word. He gives us direction and we don't do it. And then how is it going to sleep that night? Regretful? Man, it's hard to sleep tonight. I knew God told me to do that and I didn't take advantage of that opportunity. Thank God his mercies are new every morning. Um, So Patmos was just here. They're still here. They're actually serving all around. Uh, But they were sitting in the first first teaching. Uh, On Thursday night, after I left here, I went and taught at Patmos and I was teaching in Matthew chapter 8. And it's specifically after Jesus leaves the Sermon on the Mount, right? He teaches this profound, powerful message, hiked up this mountain, preaches a message, hikes back down. 
probably a little tired, probably a little weary, right? Long day, okay? But as he comes down the mountain, this leper approaches him and he says, he bows at his feet, he worships him and says, Jesus, if you're willing, make me clean. If you're willing, make me clean. Jesus says, I'm willing, be cleansed. See, Jesus was willing constantly in the midst of his weary days, constantly in the midst of him being tired, but he was willing to reach out and minister to this leper and heal him. So this is what I'm teaching. That's what, that was part of what I was teaching the Patmos students. So I'm talking about this, right? So at the end of the sermon and at the end of all this long day, yada, yada, yada. So guess what happens to me? Um, as soon as I get home, I'm like, couch, done, right? I get a text from a former Patmos student and he's like, hey, bro, can you talk? Took me about five minutes to respond, I'll be honest. In that five minutes, I was debating. I'm like, man, I'm wiped. I don't even know what to say. Lord knocks on my heart. What were you just talking about? You might be tired, but are you willing? I said, okay. So I texted him. Talked to him for a while, about an hour. Great conversation. Very tired, but I did it. I chose to be obedient to what God told me to do, and a lot of good came out of it. And you know what, at the end of the day, I slept great. I was like, man, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that, this text. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. When he asked me to do something, I, I want to do it, yes, because I love him, yes, because I want to honor him, but there's also such a satisfaction that comes with it. See, Jesus doesn't just ask us to do stuff because he's like a dictator and he's like, do this, uh, uh, uh. no, he d- asks us to do stuff because our father's a good father and he wants the best for us. See, he's invited all of us to be part of the family of God. That's the greatest family we could ever be a part of, but we have a a choice in the way we live out or live in that family. We can choose to seek God and his will. We can choose to walk in obedience and walk in his will, or we can choose not to walk in his will because the things he asks us to do oftentimes are gonna be difficult things. They're gonna be tough decisions. But ultimately, just remember, he's a good father and he wants the best for his kids. So he's not asking us to do these things just for him. He's asking us to do these things for us. He says, I have a specific, perfect, acceptable will for you. And I want you to progress and become the person that's ready to walk in that will. But if you choose disobedience today, then it's going to take you longer to get there. You're selling yourself short. I'd give you direction because I, I love you. I want the best for you. In light of that, as Jesus distinguishes the difference between the biological family and the family of God, simply put, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever hears my words and does them, this is my family. Let's purpose to honor God by being good family members. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, this text. God, we thank you for the family that you've invited us into. Lord, I pray um, that we would just be good family to you, Jesus. You've been so good to us. You laid down your life for us. Um, And you want such good things for us, God. I pray that you would give us a, a heart to walk in obedience to your will today, that we might see what your will is for us 
tomorrow and in the future, God. And um, through all that, Lord, we just trust the process and what you're walking us through, knowing that you love us, you're trying to make us like you, and you're using everything to do just that. Thank you, Lord, in your name, amen.